Good morning, everybody. If you could please join me in turning to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And now please join me in turning to Genesis chapter 3. Verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And now if you could join me in turning to Matthew, chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me pray for us and then we can jump in. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. And I pray, God, that um, as I handle it this morning, that you would help me just to to worship you as I proclaim your truth. We pray that you would have, that the word as it's preached this morning would have its intended effect on us as well. So I just pray, God, that you would be glorified this morning and that you would Uh, give us vision in terms of what you're calling us to do, and by your Spirit, equip us to be the types of people that you want us to be. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have the privilege of bringing in the new year, 2013, by preaching the first sermon. Um, As the elders have decided that we would devote one sermon a year to family discipleship, and that's what I'm the pastor of, family discipleship here at Glory of Christ. And um, this morning, I simply want to build a case for why family is important. And 
um, why family discipleship in this church matters. And, and, um, and, and at the end, I really want to urge us, I hope that the effect that this sermon has is that it inspires us to go and make disciples in 2013. Amen? All right. Um, let me ask you this. What is the mission of Glory of Christ Fellowship? I gave you a big hint. To make disciples for the glory of Christ. That's the mission of, of Glory of Christ Fellowship. That's taken out of Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, And the mission of family discipleship is to unite church and home to make disciples for the glory of Christ. Very simple. If you are a believer in Christ, you are born of the Spirit of God. And whether you are a single or a married, a husband, a wife, a teenager, an empty nester, whatever it might be, if you are born of the Spirit, you are part of the church, you are part of the family of God. All right? So the church is the, the, the family of God, and also your home is where your nuclear family dwells. That is also a family and both, as I've been teaching over the years, are contexts in which God has given us to effectively make disciples within. All right? So that's kind of a little bit of a disclaimer there. Now I just want to give you some stats, all right, to kind of put into perspective the culture that we live in and the culture that we're thinking about doing family ministry in. All right? Now I got these stats off the internet so we know that they're true and trustworthy. It says here that the, that the divorce rate in the United States of America is about 50% or over, and it's increasing. 50%. Every second in America, $3 million is being spent on pornography. 28,258 internet users per second are logging on. Porn is a $97 billion a year industry, and they earn a larger revenue than Amazon, Google, Apple, Microsoft, eBay, Yahoo, and Netflix combined. We think about pornography and how terribly distorted masculinity and femininity and this, the intimacy of God, how terribly that distorts that, and think, this is a runaway smash hit in our culture. Teenage pregnancy, suicide... Crime, poverty, high school dropouts all increase dramatically in fatherless homes or single family homes, single parent homes. Because, as we, a lot of us would agree, the home is the institutional foundation, foundational institution of society. And underneath all of the social problems that really plague us as a culture, a lot of us would be quick to say and make the connection, the breakdown of the family. And there's stats to prove that. And this is one that we don't need a stat for. We all experienced it. November 6th, our state voted no. And right before our very eyes, 
The definition of marriage, the definition that God defined, we're watching it be redefined. This is our culture. To put into perspective what family ministry means and what the family of God is called to do, we have our work cut out for us. Joshua 1.9 is a good verse to start off the year with. Now I want to try to make some sense of this. We think about the first family. Let's go back to Genesis 1 and look at the first family that God has given mankind. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we read that God has created people in his image and in his likeness. And at the end of verse 27, it says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Then what does it say? Male and female, he created them. So being created in the image of God is a complex concept. There's no doubt about that. But in a nutshell, to define it really simply, it means that we have the ability to know God, we have the ability to love God, we have the ability to obey God and to represent God and carry out God's will on this earth. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. And interestingly, make note of this, and don't let this escape you, that immediately connected to our role as an image bearer of God is our gender identity. You're either male or female, and your role as a human being is intricately connected to whether you are male or female. So the point that I'm making is we got to know what that means. Especially in a confused culture that we live in. So God has set up the gender identities, and then we get to Genesis 1.28. God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Translation, get married, have kids, buy a minivan or an extended cab pickup, whatever you prefer, maybe both, and train those kids to follow God, to worship God. That's what parenting is, is creating image bearers that know God, that are going to populate the earth and fill the earth with the glory of God, with the knowledge of God. God put man, Adam and Eve, into the Garden of Eden. It was a marked off little portion of paradise. And he gave Adam and Eve the job of extending the borders of paradise so that the whole entire earth would be covered with it. You're going to need some kids to do that. And you're going to need to train them well. That's what the endeavor of marriage and parenting and family is all about. All right. So Genesis 3 then, we get to Genesis 3, and we learn how Satan disrupts God's plan, right? We know two things about Satan. Number one, Satan is the most crafty beast of all of the beasts that God has created and put in the land. And number two, Satan hates God. He hates him. And he will find the craftiest solution 
to destroying the image of God and throwing a monkey wrench in the purpose of God. So those two things we have to consider now as we look at the plan that Satan employed. Let's keep that in mind because we have something important to learn from the way the devil approached and tried to wreck the image of God. Right? Okay, so as we learned last week, the first thing that happened is he goes to man, he approaches them, and he tries to get them to undermine the authority of God. And after the authority of God is undermined, after Adam and Eve rebel against God, all chaos ensues. But let's pay attention to this fact. Who does Satan approach in the garden and strike up the conversation with? Who did God put in charge of the garden? He put Adam in charge. Therefore, if Satan is going to have a conversation with anyone, it should be Adam. He's the decision maker. God put him in charge. He doesn't go to Adam. He goes to Eve. What is he doing there? He's a a real crafty enemy of God at this point. He goes to Eve. He understands that gender roles are intimately and intricately connected to our role of bearing the image of God. He understands how linked those two things are. He knows that. And he knows that God has set it up this way for man and woman to function together, and by so doing, God's image would be reflected as glorious throughout the earth. So you know what he does? He approaches Eve first, and he forces them to function this way, contrary to God's plan and order. This is God's order. Satan wants this order. It's reversal of what God had set up. Right off the bat, gender roles. Right off the bat. Satan's first priority, what a sneak. He's real shrewd. And what I'm saying is we can learn something about that. Namely, that's important. Getting gender roles is important. Getting gender roles right is important because, as it were, this is God's order. Satan forces this order. And now, Adam and Eve rebel against God and they create the first dysfunctional family. And now the rest of the human race is perpetuated in a cycle of dysfunction, disorder, and rebellion to God. Now God's image bearers are misrepresenting him. And it appears that Satan has really pulled one over. And that's why, getting back to those statistics that I quoted at the beginning, that's how Genesis 1 and 3 makes sense of why we're at where we're at today. You think about the family being the foundational institution of society. It was the first thing to be attacked. And now we see it all over our culture, the destruction that has ensued from it. 
All right, to illustrate this a little bit more vividly, I want to uh, share a series of, of, of dreams that I had a few months back. I know this is a little strange, maybe in our church, and, and I think I would vote myself as the last person to have dreams that would be in any way prophetic. I'm like your, your, your average meat and potatoes kind of guy, least likely to be voted you know, charismatic of the year. And I really didn't know about, you know, going this direction or sharing these, but I shared them with the elders, and they encouraged me to really consider doing it. And I think it helps build a case because I think it helps bring us into the climate of the war that we're in. Now, the first one, a couple months back, I was at Timber Bay. This isn't part of the dream. This is the place I had the dream. I was at Timber Bay Camp up north, about an hour and 15 minutes and I went there with my daughter, Lydia. I had promised her over the summer that we were going to go camping together. And the reason why I promised her that is because my intention was to take her on a camping trip and spend some good quality time with her and tell her, Lydia, it's my intention. You're at the age right now where you can understand this. It's my intention, Lydia, to disciple you. You're my daughter, and I'm your father. God has placed me in authority in your life. And I'm going to do my best, by God's grace, to guide you, to lead you to Jesus, to teach you how to follow him. My job is to teach you about God, and I know I'm going to fail, but I'll teach you about Jesus too. That's the glory of of the gospel for parents. You fail, but it becomes a a point where you can teach your kids to trust in Jesus. Amen? That was my intention. So we spent that time together. We go up there, have a great time. That night I have a dream, and it starts off, I don't want to go into the details of this one, but here's how it started off. It was, it, it was basically Satan coming to attack my family and to attack my child. And in that dream, I guess you just have to believe me and take my word for it, the foulness and the evil of the devil was so intense and so real. I felt in full force how he feels about me and how he feels about believers and how nasty his intention is and how much he would like to destroy us. And the effect that it had on me was a gripping gripping fear. I was paralyzed with fear. And I was sleeping, but in the dream I was paralyzed and it felt it so real. I don't know if you guys have ever had a a feeling in your life where you have been fearful or gripped with fear. I can tell you a story. This is the closest time I can compare it. I was up on the North Shore. This is the first time I ever went up there. My buddies were introducing me to the glories of the North Shore we were on this rock next to this waterfall. It was like 15 feet wide and it was like 15 feet high. A curtain of water was spilling over and we dove headfirst right in where the water met the water, the waterfall of the water, and we paddled with all of our might. I mean, like our lives depended on it, which it may have. And we broke through the current and you get behind the waterfall. There's like four or five feet behind there. It's pretty intense theme for next year's father-son retreat. (laughs) Um, 
So we were really excited for a minute, but after a, a few seconds, the mist that was coming up behind that waterfall was so intense, it was hard to breathe, right? And what we had to do, there was four of us, we had to climb up the wall and jump through the curtain of the waterfall so as not to get caught in the curtain. By the way, I won't do this again, I promise. And I was the last one up, and those rocks were so slippery, I could not get up there. And this was my first time up there. I'm not familiar with any of this. And I'm thinking, I'm going to get sucked up in this current. And there's nobody up there to pull a lever and stop the water. This ain't no Noah's Ark here. And I don't know about you, but drowning is one of the things that I want to avoid in my life. Right? But for a second there, I really thought, I'm going to drown. I'm going down. This is it. And I was gripped with fear. And let me tell you something. In this dream, this dream was way worse than that because it included the inclusion of somebody who really wants to destroy you. But let me tell you how it went from there. At this point, God had brought to mind 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And to the extent that I felt gripping fear, I felt the darkness flee away. It was gone. It was chased away. Jesus was king. Jesus was ruler. Jesus was authority. And he made the darkness flee. I felt calmness and I slept like a baby. I was so secure in the arms of Jesus. I couldn't even tell you. A couple weeks later, I had a second dream. It was the night of the father-daughter dinner. We had about 60 people in attendance that night. And again, I'll give you a little bit more of the particulars of this one. I was in this small town. You know, the premises of dreams are always a little strange. I was in this small town, and there was an evil, strong man approaching the, the town. And you just knew he was going to wreak havoc. And after a little while of commotion, God led me through the town, and there were cars flipped over, just the city disheveled, smoke kind of rising, just chaos everywhere. And again, that same sense of fear of, I want to destroy you, kind of overtook me. And in the dream, there I was. I'm like, this is where I uh, head out of town. And I knew the road that led to a quiet town down over yonder next to a nice river with a bank and a park and everything. And I said, that's where I'll go. And right as I'm on the road out of town, Jesus takes me and says, no. Ever so gently, I mean, so gently. I knew his hand was guiding, but I honestly didn't feel it. Guiding me right back into the heart of the mess. And there I was. He put me in the back alleyway of a back house, of a house, a series of houses, and he just put me to work picking up the town, restoring what was lost. And in that process, there was another man over yonder with a rifle pointed right at me the whole time. And everywhere I went, it was like that. And it was a, at this point... God called me to recall, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And that drove away the fear. And even though I had the mark on my back, it didn't matter because I was 100% convinced that Jesus owned all rights. He owned all authority and he could not pull the trigger unless Jesus allowed it. And that was enough for me.
And that's the reality, I think, that all of us live in. We live with an enemy that wants to take us out at any second. But we trust that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And we know that Satan cannot cause any harm to you unless it's by God's good and loving design. And the work that he was calling me to, the work that he's calling our church to, is Jesus' work. We're not responsible for the pickup of the town. We're simply responsible to follow the orders of Jesus and obey him. That's all we got to do. And I think the cars flipped over and the disheveling of the, ho- of, the, of, the, of, the, of the town was a kind of a symbolic representation of gender that has broken down, marriages that have blown apart, parenting and children that have rebelled against their parents. God gave me insight into seeing that if we can see beneath the surface, this is the reality of the effects of sin and the devil. And here we are as the church of God. What I'm calling us to do is to say, we have work to do. The church is a precious gift of God. And when I think, when I think, about, when I think about raising my children in this day and age, when I think about what it's going to take to raise up my daughters and my son, I realize that we need the family of God. We need the church of God. We need the church of God to rise up and make disciples and fight for gender clarity, to equip young men, to equip young women, to teach them how to walk in Christ. Because what's at stake here is the beauty of God. The glory of God. He created marriage. He created masculinity and femininity to display his good design. So therefore, the church is entrusted with something very precious. And I think the timing of those dreams was not a coincidence because it was a time where we were moving into enemy territory. When we think about fathers discipling their daughters and treating them as young ladies, when we think about dads going on retreats and saying, I want to disciple you, that's where Satan attacked. And I think it's, a, it, it's an indication that when we take up this battle, we are moving into enemy territory. And on the one hand, I'll tell you what, it's an intense battle. And I'd rather be in the town next to the river. But on the other hand, we'll have plenty of time to sit by the river. Now's the time we roll up our sleeves and we trust, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now, a lot of us are big believers in family. And I understand that. I'm the king of them. And many of us are sympathetic to the notion that many of the social problems that face us are connected to the breakdown of the family. So it's easy then to make the conclusion, the logical connection, that 
we got to restore the family unit. Right? We could go that direction. And I thought about that very long and very hard. And I came up with, that's actually not the right answer. That's not the right response. And here's why. Matthew 28, 19. Jesus doesn't say, go and restore the families. Jesus says, go and make disciples. That's what he says. Now, you may think this is splitting hairs here, but it's all the difference in the world. Jesus never said, let's get back to a a time in American history where the morals were right, where Ronald Reagan was the president, and all the sitcoms on television were mother and father and 2.5 kids in a station wagon with the wood crane on the side and the wire reels. We used to have one of those, the grocery getters. If we could just get back to that time period, oh boy, we would be good. That's a false gospel. Family is a false savior, right? Jesus said, make disciples. That's the first order of priority. Jesus is the one who restores your family. And Jesus restores family because sin destroyed family. It was sin that destroyed family. Therefore, Jesus, you should call his name Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. Sin is the enemy of your family, and it's the enemy of our society. God created the first family, and we rebelled against him, and dysfunction ensued. Right? Sin is the reason it fell apart. Sin is what offends God. Sin is why Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden. Sin is the cause of gender confusion. Sin is the problem in your marriage. Sin is why Cain killed Abel and your kids murder each other with hatred motives. Jesus says if you have hatred towards one another, you're murderers in your heart. We see that every day in our houses, right? If we left, I think they would kill each other because they took each other's Legos. It just might come to that. Just leave your house long enough and it might come to that. Our kids are murderers. It's sin. Sin is the cause of it. In some ways, if you really think about it, think about it like this with me, the family is the problem. The family is what broke down and it's the dysfunction that perpetuated all the dysfunction. But Jesus is the solution. Right? Jesus is the one who lived a sinless life. Jesus healed the sick. Jesus cast out the demons. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus is the exact representation of the glory of God. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus drank the cup of wrath against God's fury. Jesus is the one who bore the weight of sin of the world. Jesus is the one who went to the cross and paid the penalty for sin. Jesus is the one who raised victoriously three days later. Jesus is the one who restores your family. The one who restores gender roles is Jesus. The one who fixes marriages is Jesus. The one who guides us in parenting is Jesus. The serpent crusher, 
the first gospel that was ever proclaimed in Genesis 3.15. It was Jesus. Children, who is the whole Bible about? Jesus. What's two plus two? Four. No, it's Jesus. <laughs> it's Jesus. It just is. I don't know how. It just, it's Jesus, all right? Two plus two equals Jesus. I looked it up on the calculator. It says four, but if you ask a pastor on Sunday morning while he's preaching a sermon, two plus two equals Jesus, all right? <laughs> uh, my kids go to public school. <laughs> Class, what's two plus two? Jesus! <laughs> Asa, I think that we should pass code this uh, sermon here. I don't want like WCCO or something like that getting a hold of it. Religious fanatic teaches child two plus two equals Jesus. Okay, think about this. The family unit is not going to restore society. Jesus is going to restore your family. Brothers and sisters, we have to get this right. The family unit is not going to restore society. Jesus is going to restore your family. And as he restores your family, he's going to build his church, he's going to plug you into his kingdom, and then you will be salt and light and you will impact this society. But it starts and ends with Jesus. Two plus two equals Jesus. You know, if you think about it, Colossians 1 All things were created through him, and in him all things hold together. There would be no order, there would be no math if Jesus didn't hold it together. So in a sense, two plus two really is Jesus. All right? (laughs) Okay, so Matthew 28, 20, go make disciples of all the earth. I'm going to argue here real quick that that is the New Testament version of Genesis 1, 28. Genesis 1, 28, God puts family in the place, and he says, perpetuate, go fill the earth with my image. Well, Jesus becomes the image of God, and now as we teach people to become image bearers of Jesus, we go out, we do missions, and we fulfill Matthew one twenty eight. Matthew uh, I'm sorry, Matthew uh, 28, 19, that's right. Oh, and, and Genesis 1, 28. So, let me, let me, uh, let me say one more different thing about uh, Matthew 1, 20, or I'm sorry, Matthew 28, 19. Um, or a couple of different things. Now, we fill the earth with God's image by making disciples of Jesus. So when we think about fulfilling the Great Commission, when we think about fulfilling what Genesis one twenty eight was calling us to do, to fill the earth, the one caveat now in the New Testament is we do that by making disciples. And then here's good news. If you are an empty nester or if you are a single person, right, you might think, well, I don't have a family. I'm not married yet, so this doesn't apply to me. Yes, it does. And here's how. Because now in Matthew 28, 19, go make disciples, 
You now build a kingdom and you build the family of God. You don't have to birth kids. You can disciple them. Right? So if you are a single person in this church and you're thinking this sermon doesn't apply to me, it does apply to you because you can be a discipler in this church. You can preach the gospel and by the Spirit of God, somebody might be born again. Right? And you bring them into the kingdom. And you can take kids in this church and you can disciple them and you can be discipled. Jesus never had a wife. He never had biological kids. He had spiritual kids. He made disciples. So if you're a single person, you are part of this family and you have a role to play in this church. All right. So let me just close with the reminder. We have work to do in 2013. Let's use our church and let's use our home to make disciples. Let me ask you a couple of last questions. And if you want to follow up, there's this family discipleship newsletter. You guys will all have this in your inbox. You can get some physical copies over there. But here's some last questions. I want you guys to consider this, and I'll close. Looking into 2013, what plans do you have to grow in your relationship with Jesus? And if you're married as a couple, how do you... When you look into 2013, what plan do you have? Are you just going to do what you've got, done? If you do what you've done, you're going to get what you've got. And for a lot of you, that's a good thing. But be intentional about it. In 2013, what is your plan to disciple your children? What expectations do you have if you're a father? What expectations do you have for all of your kids, and how will that look? Is your spouse aware of those expectations? Or are you ships crossing? I thought discipleship meant this. No, I I thought it meant that. Are you guys connected on that? Do you guys both know, mom and dad, what that means for you guys, for your family in 2013? How are you going to make disciples? What will that look like? Two more questions. How do you need your church family in your discipleship and in the discipleship of your children? I plan to, I really mean this, I'm going to do my darndest, my best, to find answers from you guys. How do you need the church? How do you look to the church and say, I need the church in this way to help me become a disciple and my children? And number four, how do you plan to participate in the church family to make disciples? How do you plan to participate in the church family to make disciples? Let me pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your love towards us. Thank you that we have hope in Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have restored everything that was lost. And thank you that you are greater and you are in us than he who is in the world. We pray you go with us now in 2013. In Jesus' name, amen.